Hi, I'm Chris Vallotton from Bethel Church in Redding, California. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. We hope to really inspire and encourage you. On another note, we have the School of the Prophets coming up in August, and this school is going to be epic. We are doing the essentials online on an online school before the actual event, and then we're going to take a week to actually train up prophets and prophetesses who are actually transforming the world. It's going to be epic. We're going to talk about the political world, the world of government, the world of entertainment, the world of technology. We're just going to go after all the realms that week, and it is actually going to be really profound. So join Down on I and the team. You can get the information below. You can go to Bethel.com slash prophets and join us there. God bless you. Hope to see you at the School of the Prophets. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you bless the speaker tonight and the people. Amen. Amen. I, I want to talk to you about developing a prophetic movement that reforms the world. And uh, it's kind of been the subject that we were, we've been on for a, a lot, a lot of years. And so I don't know, for those of you that are new to Bethel, this may be uh, a fairly new message. But for everyone else, this is probably just saying the same thing we've been saying in a, in a way, in a, maybe in a little different way. But I want to talk about eight attributes of an effective prophetic movement that radically reforms the world. And first of all, I want to say that Jesus said that we are to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, he actually said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I taught you. And uh, I, I want to say, um, for those that are, are new and maybe not, haven't been engaged in, in this culture, it's really important that we realize that we are, we are actually warring from victory not for victory. Like, we don't have a big devil and a little God. We have a big God and a little devil. Have you ever asked yourself the question, like, why did God put the devil and you on the same planet? Um, I, I mean, I'm like, why not the devil on Mars? Or I'm thinking even another solar system would be awesome. Have you ever thought about that? This means yes. Okay, like, I don't know what this means, but I'm going to teach you how to respond. This means yes, this means no, this means. I'm in a trance of some kind. Have you ever thought about why the Lord put the devil on the same planet he put you on? Have you ever thought about that? You can say no, it's okay. No, I haven't. I don't think like that. Well, it wasn't to torment you. It was for you to torment him. Satan said, when his name was Lucifer, he said, I will be like God, I will raise to the heights of heaven, and I will be like the Most High. And the Lord said, no you won't, I will cast you down to the earth. And the Lord cast him out of heaven, down to the earth, and we know that the earth that he was cast down to was formless and void. It's the Hebrew word chaos. And the devil was cast down to chaos. And, and over a period of six days, he hears this on the sixth day. You know, I, I, I don't know, I kind of like summarize, I kind of imagine that the devil's on the earth for who knows if he's here for a billion years or one year or one week or 
but he's on a rock floating through space, something like the moon. It was formless and void. There was no light, there was no water, there was no beauty. And then he hears, let us make, like, let there be light. And there's light. And all of a sudden, he begins, the, God begins to create. He creates the waters and separates the, the waters from the, from, the, from the land. And he begins to uh, release life and plants and animals. And you know the whole story. And I don't know what the devil was thinking, but here he is on a planet that was just a rock floating through space. And over a period of five days, it reminds him of heaven. And I don't know if he thinks maybe God relented. But then he hears these terrible words. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. What did the devil want to be? Like God. On the sixth day, God said, let us make creatures just like me. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over everything that creeps on the earth. Ladies, how many of you know you have power over creeps? <laughs> and all of a sudden, I believe the devil understood what was happening. Before God throws him into the lake of fire, he created creatures that were just like God. The, Lucifer wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit in the heights of the heaven. Where are you seated? In heavenly places with Christ. And who were you made after? After the image and likeness of God. How many know that you were never made to be tormented by the devil? You were meant to torment the devil. You're part of his sentence before God sends him to the lake of fire. God never intended, intended for the devil to rule the world. He intended for man to rule the world. And how many of you know when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they didn't just disobey God. Remember God said, don't eat the fruit. And the devil said, eat the fruit. How many of you know when they ate the fruit, they didn't just disobey God, they obeyed the devil. God gave them, God gave man authority over the earth. Remember in Luke chapter 4 when the devil and Jesus are in this battle in the wilderness? And the devil said, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the entire world, for they have been given to me. Who gave them to him? Adam. God gave the earth. The heavens, the highest heavens, belong to the Lord, but the earth belongs to the sons of men. How many know that God gave authority over the earth to man? And man changed God's. God said, don't eat the fruit. The devil said, eat the fruit. When Adam ate the fruit, he changed masters. And all of a sudden... The devil became the master of the earth. Why did Jesus have to be, come in the form of a man? I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but how many know that God gave authority over the earth to man, so God had to become a man so he could get? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men can become sons of God. And you now, God has, has commissioned us to be disciples of nations. And by the way, that wasn't a new concept. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? The, 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 the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. Do you remember the promise? That you shall be a father to what? Many nations. Abraham wasn't just the father of Israel. The promise to Abraham and all those who are of the seed of Abraham. The goal of Abraham was that he would be a father to many nations. 
And Romans, goes, Romans 4 goes on to say that in hope against hope, speaking of Abraham not having any children, in hope against hope he believed that he might become the father of nations. The next verse says, and so shall his descendants be. What were you called to be? Father of nations. How many know when Jesus said, make disciples of nations, like that was not a new concept. He said, I have inaugurated the season that Abraham looked to. You will be the father. You will be mothers of nations. You will be leaders of nations. Good word, Chris. Too late. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this, uh, this, about attributes, prophetic attributes that actually lead nations. And I was uh, saved in the Jesus movement, which was a long time ago. And we were... Um, we were, the, the motto verse, our motto in the Jesus movement was to come out and be separate. We had a rapture mentality. And we believed that Jesus was going to come back any minute. We read this book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And by the way, I think Hal Lindsey's probably a really great man. I've never met him. But I think he, he was writing the revelation that he felt he had at the time. But uh, we felt, we, that book talked about the coming of the Lord. In fact, that book predicted the date when the Lord would return. And uh, every time they reprinted that book, they changed the date. So it was changed four times in the late great planet Earth. But there was a series, a tape series that went with that book. I don't know if any, how many of you, for the, for the younger people that think I'm crazy, can the older people that have read that book and, okay, just so you know, like I was not the only one. And there was a tape series, a tapes, uh, there was a cassettes like they used to like be tape. And it, yeah, if you've never seen them. It was a real experience. And, uh, and one of the, one of the, the cassette tapes, I, I don't know if this was the exact title, but it was like, how to not take the mark of the beast. And how to teach your children how to not take the mark of the beast. And so well, I was raised, uh, not, not, I mean, this is all before I met Bill, of course, but I was raised in a defeatist kind of culture where the devil was in charge of the earth and, and then the beast was after us and and we were going to be raptured out of here any minute. And some believe we we're going to be raptured before this tribulation. And some in the middle of it. And some after it. And some said it'll, it'll pan out. And, uh, <laughs> and when you went to a prophetic conference, it wasn't, about <laughs> it wasn't about equipping and training. It was about charts. Like they'd have a chart. that I'm serious. Like you go to a prophetic conference, it's all like, and this is, you know, Gog and Magog and Wannabagog and Gaggog. And you, and you leave those conferences and it wasn't encouraging, exhorting, or comforting. You, it was like another, like, here is the scheme of the devil. And by the way, there's nothing you can do about it. And, uh, and I, I lived in that. And funny, we were talking about it a little bit at dinner tonight that um, you know, in, all, in every other age, in the industrial age, in the agricultural age, believers actually led invention and innovation. But it's very interesting in the Jesus culture, and Bill pointed out that there were some Christians who were leading invention and innovation, but the most famous fathers and mothers of invention and innovation in the, in the, in the uh, information age were unbelievers, they were, they were Buddhists, and, and they were, they were, they were uh, New Age people, and and, uh, and atheists, and it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, you may know this, but Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, 
uh, Bill Joy, who was the father of the internet, and, uh, and Michael Dell were all born within a year of each other. And I was born in the middle of all of those guys' birthdays. And I thought it was interesting that I never went to college. First of all, I probably wouldn't have been a very good student. I don't know if anyone would have taken me. But I didn't go to college specifically because I believe the rapture was going to happen any time. That was very common among, uh, among uh, the people that, the Jesus people and the, the Christians that we hung out with. And so uh, when the, the, at the birth of the information age, when people were having foresight for the information age, we were looking up. We were like, get us out of here. And in the midst of all of that, like, come out and be separate. The rapture is going to happen anytime. Don't be involved in culture. Don't get polluted. Be careful. Uh, those, were all, those were all big themes. It was not like a side theme. These were all, it didn't matter if you were a, a, a Pentecostal, a Charismatic, a Baptist. Like, these were the common themes of the day. And consequently, what happened is, is that evil began to grow in our culture in a, in a, in a, a, there's always been evil in the world, of course, but in a quantum way. And suddenly we have the, we had the 60s sexual revolution, and soon after that, you know, we have the, the gay revolution, and now we have the transgender revolution, and, and basically these movements have taken over the world. As we sat in our pews, afraid of the Antichrist, the Antichrist basically took over culture. And I think it's just been, I don't, I don't know, like we've been talking about an awakening, and I feel like, uh, and I think there are levels of awakening, of course, but one of the great awakenings in my mind is that we're awakening to the fact that we're supposed to actually be discipling nations. Like, we're actually supposed to be engaged in culture. We're actually supposed to be engaged in government. We've actually been anointed for government. Like, I, that, like, there is a reason why people don't want the church to be involved in government. There should be a separation of church and state, which maybe I agree with, but there shouldn't be a separation between church and government. <laughs> anyway, okay. In uh, Matthew chapter 13, so I, I want to I talk about some attributes. Number one, um, eight attributes of effective prophetic movements that radically reform cultures. Number one, one of the attributes is it's engaged in culture. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus spoke another parable to them, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And of course, the analogy there is, is that we're like yeast. Like we are hidden. We look like everyday people. <laughs> we look like everyday housewives, everyday fathers, everyday mothers. We look like plumbers and, and, and school teachers. And we look like everyday people. But actually, we're the Incredibles. <laughs> actually, we actually have been infused with the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We have the power of God. We have the wisdom from another age. And we look like everyday people. We're disguised as everyday people. But we're actually a new creation. The word new there means prototype, never before created. God created aliens. 
Peter said, we are aliens and strangers. We are actually full of power of God. Even though we look like everyday people, he's needed us into society like Daniel's, Joseph, and Esther's. So that, not so society will be condemned, but so it will rise to the kingdom. This is our job. The most brilliant people in the world are sitting in the seats right in this place. You have the mind of Christ. You actually think like God. <laughs> I, love, uh, I, I don't know if you've thought through this, but very few miracles were ever done inside the church in the Bible. In fact, I, I can't think of one. I'm sure there was some, but I can't think of one. I, I, I don't know. I was thinking about it today as I was preparing. I don't know a prophet who prophesied in church. Like they were all engaged in culture, Old and New Testament. They were all engaged in culture. And I I was in this charismatic movement and Pentecostal movement. I've been a part of the Jesus movement, the charismatic movement, uh, the the no movement, (laughs) other movements I won't talk about. But um, we were training and teaching people how to prophesy and, and how to move in the gifts of the Spirit and it was, it was all good, you just couldn't use it anywhere else. Like, we didn't train and equip, well, let me say this, we either didn't train and equip with deployment in mind, or the only deployment we had in mind was people who were like us. And I, I remember, like, when, I, I, when, you know, when we got saved in the charismatic movement, we prophesied over someone, we had to speak in tongues first. <laughs> some, of you, some of the young people are getting a history lesson. So we had to like, and then we all read the King James Bible because the only other Bible was like the message Bible kind of thing. And my mentor said, you can't read the message Bible. That's not a real translation. So we all, every time we pray, we pray, ye, ye, ye shall not. No, I can't even talk like that anymore. But you can always tell what brand of Bible. What, what, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and of course, some of the Jesus people, they read the message Bible and they didn't really know the Bible anyway. So they're like, dude, I saw an orbit around you. Not totally connected to the Bible, but it was really a good try. And then the Pentecostal people, they're like, but you can't really in the mall. Because you do that and the security takes you away before you actually get the prophetic word out. And what I'm actually saying is, well, is, is that that ministry, you have to understand why it was like that. We didn't do deployment. We did the worlds out there. We're in here. And if you actually want to know God, you got to come in here. you got to come in here, and we'll give you a shout-out. And, and, and we always talked in first person like, and the Lord says unto you tonight. You know, I was like that. It was scary. You know, like, nobody wanted to go to a prophetic meeting where people prophesy over you because they also call out your sins. Remember, we had a, a lady in Weirville. <laughs> I tell the story all the time, but it's absolutely true. This is pre-Bill. Well, Bill, Bill kicked her out. Kindly. <laughs> Kindly. And she was a very heavy-set lady, and she, she prophesied. We, we knew if the Spirit was moving... Um, on Sundays because she prophesied. She didn't prophesy like the spirit wasn't moving. But she, um, she prophesied whenever the spirit was moving. 
you know that phrase, moving? It meant like the preacher might be preaching, and then the spirit's moving. So she'd get up and interrupt the pastor while he's preaching, and she always started with a, yeah, she, was, she always started with a tongue, and she would shake. She did it, and she had three themes. She didn't like movies. <laughs> she didn't like makeup, and she didn't like women in pants. But it was kind of cool because she rotated them every Sunday. <laughs> I'll never forget. I don't know if Bill remembers this because he probably had lots of traumatic moments. Our church was 40 people when Bill came, maybe 40 people. And I, I'll never forget, you know, when Grandma got up, Grandma Kale. So I, I think, I don't remember for sure if the first time Bill was preaching, but one of the times Bill was preaching. But during worship, she just stands up and she started, shut up! I mean, it scared the bejeebers out of you if you've never had it happen before. And, of course, we all knew it was going to happen, so we were all prepared for it. And she, she gives this word about, you know, And thus saith the Lord tonight, that you shall not be in the movies when I come, or thou shalt be left behind. She didn't rotate those. Anyway, I think she did it like three or four times like that to Bill and and finally, Bill said, you know, one Sunday, like before worship started, he's like, you know what? From now on, if you have a prophetic word, I want you to write it down and send it forward. And, and we'll all read it, and if I feel like it needs to be given, <laughs> this is true, right? What I'm saying is true. If I feel like it needs to be given, then I'll, I'll share it with the congregation. Well, you can't shabayayaya on paper. <laughs> Anyway, six ushers carried her out one Sunday. Bill was very graceful. But six ushers carried her out. And it was really funny because, you know, we have an old church where you have those windows. You know, you have those side windows that you can see out of, but they're like, like your shower windows. And she was still all the way out to the car, shaking her hand. And the ushers carrying her horizontally out. Why did I tell you that story? I don't know. I tell you that story because that was our culture. We didn't have a culture where you actually could influence anybody unless they came to church and then you had to like, you had to culturize them because they didn't know what Shabbat yeah, yeah, yeah. So you warned all your friends like, someone's going to stand up and be going to Shabbat yeah, yeah, and it's the Lord. And you had to kind of convince your friends that all of that, that, that drama was the Lord. And we didn't, because, but, but on a serious note, it was all because we were taught we're not supposed to be in the world. Yeah. We're not supposed to be influencing the world. Like the world comes here, they have to do it on our terms. Seeker sensitive, we didn't have anybody seeker sensitive. We have seeker sensitive, like, we have this really high wall. You want the Lord? Jump over the wall. <laughs> and people that got saved, they got really saved. They had to really jump high. And, and that, that was the culture we were raised in. And, um, and, you know, and the Lord, you know, when the Lord's on someone, it's like John the Baptist in my, in my mind. And we had, we had great revivals. So don't, don't misunderstand me. God, God can use anything for his good. And like John the Baptist, you know, he was eating, he's wearing camel's hair and, and eating grasshoppers. And where do you preach if you wear camel's hair and eat grasshoppers? You preach in the wilderness. But it says all of Israel went out to see him. 
And we had those moments. We had all of Israel kind of moments where people would flock. They, and despite the weirdness, despite all the stuff that was designed for people who, who knew the Lord in that context, we had massive revivals because people were hungry and they would get saved. Uh, Jesus people would came in. I, I, I wish we could rewind the Jesus people movement, not so we could go back there, but so you could know how powerful it was. What they had, what hippies had to brave, the culture they had to brave to find Jesus. We were in, in, in suits and ties, and they got, they got saved in these, uh, like Calvary Chapel was very uh, teaching-oriented. People wore suits and ties, and here's the hippies braving a culture that was totally anti-hippie. It was totally not hip, not cool, the opposite of all of that. And yet they were so hungry they would come anyway to hear the word of God. But my point is, we didn't go, they came. And to me, this is that owl thing. This is the Lord sending us into the darkness, to the deepest, darkest places of the planet. Of the planet. And we, but we have eyes to see. We can see through the darkness. We are like nocturnal. Like we are prepared for the darkness. Do you know what I mean, prepared for the darkness? Like Daniel's, like Joseph. You take Daniel, you put him in Babylon. Babylon was, it's even in the, in the, in the book of Revelation as, the, as the, the symbol of evil. And you put Daniel, you put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in an incredibly dark culture. But what happens? They shift in 70 years. They shift Babylon and Persia. They actually shift it. And Cyrus, Cyrus is influenced by Daniel and I, I think mentored by Daniel, Cyrus, this king who doesn't know God at the time. Isaiah prophesies about him. You know this, Isaiah 45. And, uh, and he, ta- he calls Cyrus his servant. And he says, I'm going to give you hidden treasures and secret places of darkness. This is, this is years before Cyrus is king. And Jeremiah prophesied, there's be a man named Cyrus and he will become king. And Daniel lives 70 years in this craziness. And ends up, you know, through four kings, he lives through four kings, ends up being there when, when, when Cyrus is king. And he realizes, Daniel realizes he's been praying four, three times a day, three times a day, three times a day towards Jerusalem. He opens his windows three times a day towards Jerusalem. And he prays for the, if you will, for the, the prophetic declaration that Jeremiah had that in the 70th year that they would be let go from Babylon. They would go back to their home country and, and that there would be a, a revival. There would be, there would be a, 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 them being let go, to go back. To POWs would be set free. And Daniel's praying three times a day towards Jerusalem every day for 70 years. And the 70th year, he realizes it's the 70th year. And Cyrus is king. And Jeremiah prophesied that, that a man named Cyrus would be king. And he would let God's people go. And such a powerful story. But these guys were prepared for darkness. And did you know God called Nebuchadnezzar my servant? You know, I, I, I know it's like a side story, and I'm obviously not going to finish my message tonight. <laughs> Unless you want to hear the eternal gospel. I mean, people struggle with, uh, this is part of our, us learning how to be kings. People don't understand how God thinks. How does God call Nebuchadnezzar 
my servant. I mean, a guy's building statues to himself, killing people who don't bow down to him. And yet God knows something about Nebuchadnezzar nobody else knows. God is talking to this guy in dreams and in visions, and this guy destroyed Israel, took all these people captive, and God goes, he's my servant. When you say, well, God couldn't make Obama president, you don't want to read your Bible. God don't think like you. Unless you think like him. Trump can't be president. Look at what he tweets. I mean, it's not a political statement. It's like we have to learn how to lead like kings. Like God is sending us into the deepest darkness. We can't have the little church boy thing. God's not anointing presidents to be pastors. Oh, that's all. Man, I'm going, I'm not even on my notes anymore. Gosh, I hope the earth isn't flat because I'm about to fall off. I so want us to learn how to be owls. I so want us to learn how to think. I so want us to like shake off the political and religious spirit and be loyal to a kingdom and be able to fly above the political spirit and be in government. Be Daniel's, Joseph, Esther's, Solomon's, David's, right? We, don't, we, we need the Daniel's and Joseph. We also need the Solomon's. We need the kings and the queens that actually are the heads and lead. But we don't need dumb people in office. I mean, we have enough people that have the title Christian and they get in office and they don't know what the heck they're doing. And we feel like, we got to be loyal to him, he's a Christian. It's like, I take the non-Christian, he knows what he's doing. Well, I'm serious. Sometimes the non-Christian knows more about God than the Christian. And we want to just like understand, like, what is it we're doing? Like, how do you disciple nations? How do you walk with kings? You got to start thinking like kings and not like little powerless people who are like, oh, who take selfies of everybody. No, that's another. I don't mind selfies. It's just when we act like we're like gawkers and groupies instead of fellow kings. I don't like when we get into places of power and we act like we're little people, like, we're so happy to be here. Can I give a selfie? Can you sign my forehead? Like, behave like royalty. Stop it. Act like you're noble. Act like you're supposed to be in the room. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Number two. <laughs> I have more like a rant than a word. Number two, one of the attributes of an effective prophetic culture is it's hopeful. It's hope-filled. Um, Jesus is called the hope of nations. The hope of nations. Uh, um, you're the light of the world. I've been sharing this over and over for the last couple of years. Matthew 5, 14. You're the light of the world. The city set on a hill can't be hidden. 
nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but puts it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way, in such a way, everybody say, in such a way, that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. I, I, I want to just point out that part of the theology that we were raised with is that in the last days, the church is going to get brighter and brighter, and the world is going to get darker and darker. Isn't it funny that we are never called the light of the church? We're called the light of the world. If the world's getting darker and darker, I'd propose that we put the light in the wrong location. And Jesus went on to say, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but sets it on a lampstand. You know, we went without electricity for almost three weeks here um, this, last, this last summer. And, um, and so, you know, like we were using lamps and, and candles. And like, oh, that all makes a whole lot more sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, hey, put that thing up high so we can see as much as you can. How many understand the Lord's elevating us? He's elevating the light. And he said, no one put, takes a lamp and puts it, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. How many understand that the only way for us to turn the light up in here and have it get darker in some place is for us to confine the light to a basket? But Jesus thought about that before you did. And he said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. In other words, if the world's getting darker, the churches become a basket. And the church, if the world is getting darker while the church gets brighter, then the church is a basket. And uh, we wrote uh, the book Heavy Rain, which is a book about um, cultural transformation. And my team, I had my team do a, a, a survey of the um, statistical study, I should say, of, of U.S. cities, American cities. So it's, this is just American cities. We only did American cities. But what we learned is this, that the cities that have the greatest Christian church-going population have the worst social statistics in our nation. Now, if you didn't get what I just said, let me put it really simply. The more people that go to a Christian church in any given city, the worse off the social statistics are in that city. Divorce rises, joblessness rises, unemployment rises, Sickness rises. Everything rises as churches get bigger. I call it, in the book, I call it the huddle effect. It's like we don't have time to actually be in the world because we're in church all the time. I bet you most every megachurch pastor thinks, if we have 10,000 people in our church, our city would be so much better off. And I can prove to you that it's actually the polar opposite. That the only way you transform a city is to actually transform a city. This is deep. You should write this down. <laughs> My point is, you won't transform a city by accident. You won't do it. it. It's like this. If I clean the inside of my house, it doesn't mean my lawn's going to be beautiful. If I go out and mow my lawn, it doesn't mean my kitchen's going to be clean. I know it's a silly illustration, but we just think that there's some kind of osmosis. Like if we have really healthy Christian people, our city will be transformed. And I can tell you, statistically, it's not true. The only people that transform cities are people that transform cities on purpose. Good point. I, wanna, uh, I love this story about hope. 
the power of hope. In 1950, Kirk Ritter, a Harvard graduate and a John Hopkins scientist, did a series of experiments that tested how long rats could swim in high-sided buckets of recycling water before drowning. <laughs> I always hear some people like, oh, the poor rats. Dr. Ritter found that under normal conditions, a rat could swim for an average of 15 minutes before giving up, before giving up, before giving up, and sinking. However, if he rescued the rats just before drowning, dried them off, and let them rest briefly, and then put them back into the same buckets of recirculating water, the rats would swim an average of 60 hours. Yes, 60 hours. If a rat was temporarily saved, it would survive 240 times longer than if it was not temporarily saved. Temporarily saved. This makes no sense. How could these rats swim so much longer during the second session, especially after swimming as long as possible to stay alive in the first session? Dr. Ritter concluded that the rats were able to swim longer because they were given hope. A better conclusion is, is that the rats were able to swim longer because they were given energy through hope. The rats had a clear picture of what being saved looked like, so they kept on swimming. How many know that Jesus is the hope of nations? Like, this is the element we bring to culture. We've been doing this in our own city for a long time, really 17 years, probably longer, probably people before we ever got here. But proactively, for 17 years, we've been tithing to our city, giving to our city, working in our city. And it's only been the last three years that we've really seen any statistical change in our city. But we sit in meetings where people talk about the homeless problem, the, 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 the uh, crime issue, the, the unemployment issue. And we've been sitting in them for 17 years. I remember sitting with some Christian business leaders and and, and uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't having a great day anyway. And they had invited me, like I was a last minute invite. And they had been meeting together for a while. And, and uh, they had just been, uh, had a bill that they put forward, defeated, it, that would, would have helped the economy. And they were about just a few months before. So they were in this mode and they were just talking about, like these believers were talking about like how dark things are and how terrible you know, this, it is to live in California. And they were going on like that. And I don't know if this happens to you, or maybe I don't know if I had like, you know, PMS, like post-ministry syndrome, or <laughs> if it was a real prophetic act, or, but I just got so upset, and it was my first invitation. they would never been invited back. <laughs> and I stood up, and I slammed my hands on the table. I said, this is ridiculous. Like, we are believers. Believers. We are here to be the light of the world. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't come to this conference. <laughs> and I said, we're the hope of the nations. Like, if you guys, if, if we're the hope of Reading, Reading's in freaking trouble. <laughs> and I looked at each one of them. There was like 12 business people in here. I said, do you have faith for this city? Uh, do you? Do you? Do you? If you don't, please don't work in our city. Because God wants people that have faith. And yes, we've had a defeat, but we are not. <laughs> I mean, we are pressed down, but we are not defeated. We are not, we don't give up. We're like Churchill. Or anyone else you like that doesn't give up. Rocky. <laughs> What's he doing? Winning. 
Anyway, they never invited me back, but it felt so good. We, like, we're people who believe. This is, we're believers. We're, we're, we're not factors. We're believers. We, 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 we're, we've come here to bring hope to hopeless situations. It's who we are. It's part of who we are. We have many defeats in between our successes because we believe in the impossible. God's called us to do the impossible. We had an incident, and I'll, I'll end with this story, and I'll read you uh, just a, an article in probably 10 more minutes. But we had a, a situation uh, real recently in the last three, three months where one of our, um, we had a, a baby die, two-year-old die in our congregation. And you probably have heard of it. And, um, and I got to the hospital uh, about, about two hours after it, the whole incident happened. I'd heard about it late, and, and our teams were already there, and mom and dad weren't home when it happened. It was just not good circumstance. There's never a good circumstance, but it was like the worst of the worst circumstance. And mom and dad got there after the coroner was trying to take the baby, and it was, oh, it was just, just not good. And, and, and uh, I knelt down in the chapel with mom and dad, and, you know, of course, everyone's weeping, and they're in shock. You're in shock. You don't even know how to feel. And mom leans over and she says, is it okay if we believe for a resurrection? And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm like, you know, you know, does your mind do It's like, that's probably not going to happen. That's what I'm thinking. But I'm like, mom has faith for a resurrection. And, they, and she says, is it, you think it's okay if we pray for a resurrection? And I heard myself say, absolutely. My mind was saying, absolutely not. <laughs> and dad leans over and says, oh, I, think, I think God's going to raise her from the dead. And I'm like, absolutely. But in my mind, I'm thinking, that is not going to happen. You know the odds of that? But they were very, like, full of faith. And before we left that, that chapel, I mean, there was lots of tears. There was lots of different, you know, the emotions were all over the place. So let me be clear. It wasn't like, we walked out of there in victory. It wasn't anything like that. But it was like that they had infused those 60, 80 people with, my daughter's rising from the dead. God's going to do a miracle. Her name is Olive. She's going to be in all the branch of the nations. And I'm like, let's do this. And, of course, the whole leadership team got involved and, the, the Bethel leadership team got involved, and Bill and the team, and, and, and the story goes on, and you know the story. And ultimately, we, we buried her five days, six days later, and it was, very, it was one of the saddest moments of my life. But what was, what, was, what was exciting and sad in the middle of it was the responses of people. 35 million people prayed. 35 million people prayed. People from all over the world. Hillsong, Rick Warren's, I mean, which mega churches, little churches, people we've never met before, like people who love Bethel music, their music, and have never been here. They just begin to like send us letters like, we're with you, we're, we're fasting, we're praying, we're staying up all night, we're, we're from Australia, and we'll, we're watching you at four o'clock in the morning, we're with you, and it's like this camaraderie happened on our teams and this beautiful thing was happening and God was moving in our midst and and uh and that was so beautiful and and and, and the, but but the other side of it was there was this whole 
I don't know if you want to call it coalition, but there was a, there was a whole bunch of believers, believers, Christians, who were like, that's crazy. You guys are a cult. What are you doing? Like, trying to raise a dead person. That's ridiculous. And I'm like, and I said to myself, here's the problem. Here's the problem right now. Jesus said, heal the sick, raise the dead. Ten people in the Bible were raised from the dead. It wasn't like it happened once. (laughs) Ten people in the Bible were raised from the dead. Jesus only raised four of them. Like, we've seen two people raised from the dead since I've been here. Students raised people from the dead. We saw a person raised from the dead in Waverville. Like, it happens. It's happened before. We were commanded to do it. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. I don't have a problem with, I'm having a hard time struggling with this. I'm having that same hard time, too. I get it. I I understand. But when when people are like, Look at their occult. They believe in the impossible. <laughs> like, I think this is supposed to be normal Christianity. Yeah. I think we're supposed to believe in the impossible. That's what we're called to be. We're called to believe in the impossible. When everybody else goes home, it's us who stand on the, plentil, the, on the plot of lentils with the sword, so to speak, and we defend that, and we go, over my dead body, and I may die doing this, but I'd rather die in faith than live in doubt. Like this is, this is what we do. We inspire people to believe. We bring hope to the nations. When everybody else goes, the whole nation's going to hell, we go, not on my watch. We go, oh, the whole nation's going towards homosexuality and lesbianism and, and transgenderism and, and I just give up. It's like, we don't give up. Because we're the light of the world. We're the hope of the nations. When everybody goes home, we stay up at night we stay in the fight until we win we don't win this time we'll win next time if we don't win next time we'll win the next time are you following me like this is what we do as prophetic people we prophesy life to dead bones everybody else sees a boneyard we see a mighty army this is what we do we speak, we say to, we speak things that are not as though they are. Like we bring the word of the Lord to dark circumstances. We bring light and darkness. This is what we do. This is normal Christianity. And yes, if you don't want some losses, then you, I don't know even how you have faith. Has God ever told you to do something that didn't work? This is what we do. We are, we are believers. We are Christians. We, uh, we spent, we have spent, and by the way, we have spent a long time working in our city. And um, we have a long ways to go. We have a really severe homeless problem all over California. And our city is experiencing the same. We, we, we have a crime problem that... Um, that that's, that's pretty serious. We, we, have, we, have, we have lots of issues. But, you know, I, I think what we're looking for is, like, are we improving? Yeah, sure. and, uh, a San Francisco Chronicle did an article on us. I just want to read you a couple of the paragraphs. It's super encouraging. It's the San Francisco Chronicle. 
I, I, I want to be careful because I'm, I'm so thankful that they did that. And we, we wrote to the, to the uh, journalist and, and really thanked him for doing this article. It was really great. It, it had to be pretty courageous. This was, they, they aren't normally like super positive about churches. <laughs> uh, the article was entitled, Is This Heaven or Reading? It was uh, May 21st, 2019 when they wrote the article. The Shasta County city of 91,000 is home to a church, Bethel, with 11,000 members and a commitment to the community so intense it's almost supernatural. <laughs> I, love, I love that line. No institution in our state is better at engaging with its hometown. While the experts say civil engagement is supposed to be strategic, planned, and targeted at specific issues, Bethel's engagement with, this, with Reading is big and broad, touching almost every aspect of civil life. It is grounded not in the language of activism, but in the celebration of love, the love of God, the love of the place you live, and the love of the people who live in that place. The lack of structure in Bethel's assistance to its hometown suggests a broader lesson for community building. Stop overthinking things and just throw yourself into it, heart, soul, into addressing the needs of people. When Reading Civic Auditorium was failing, Bethel helped put together a nonprofit called Advance Reading to fix its management. When the Reading Police Department was about to lay off four officers, Bethel raised money, $1.2 million, to keep the cops on. After the car fire destroyed more than 1,000 residents last summer, Bethel gave $1,000 cash to every family, church member or not, that lost a home. And by the way, that was all because of folks like you. We raised, in one week, we raised $1.7 million. Bethel's also connected the world, the Reading to the world. Bethel which has a global disaster response team and a Christian music collective with international reach, helped persuade United Airlines to start a daily nonstop service between LAX and Reading this month. And by the way, we put up a half a million dollars to do that. And a bunch of other people put money in. By the way, this, is, this article is about Bethel, but it's not, it's a collective. This is like, this isn't just about Bethel. This is about other people in the body of Christ coming and helping other churches, lots of great organizations. Uh, and this is, this, I'm so thankful that this is about Bethel, but I want to say that this is much bigger than Bethel. Um, Bethel inspires services with two big messages. First, it teaches that through God, individuals can triumph over challenges and experience miracles. And second, the church constantly celebrates Reading and highlights opportunities to join community projects. This is a quote from our mayor. Bethel really enjoys... Bethel really encourages everyone to take ownership of the area, to live your faith uh, in a way that's felt, said Mayor Winter, Julie Winter, a church board member. Bethel says, that if God's for you, then who can be against you? So why not start a new business? Why not volunteer to make this city an amazing place? Why not, in my case, run for city council? And it goes on like that for pages. That's oh, pretty awesome. Uh, uh, in, uh, this, this last year, in 2020, we were voted the third best place in America to visit out of 25 places. Among the 25 best places in America, we were third. We were ranked number three in the most generous city in America by GoFundMe. Um, Reading, uh, the Matador Network, rated us number three of the of 25 coolest towns in America. Uh, in Reading, Bloomberg ranked Reading number six in small tech communities in America. That was in August 24th, 2019. And Bethel Technologies, we just told you, was rated the number one coding school by Newsweek magazine in America. This all just happened in the last 
in the last 18 months. Like we were rated nothing before that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, and you know, yes, thank you. There's several more of those too that, that I could read, but the exciting thing is, you know how people say, and they changed overnight. No, we didn't. It was many, many other churches, us, civil, uh, um, civil groups, social groups, city, uh, city team, the city council, board of supervisors, police, everybody pouring in. But what I'm getting at is that we proactively point in for 17, 18 years, and all of a sudden, we start to see growth. I, I want to really encourage you. You may be pouring into your seat like nothing's changing. We had those conversations week after week after week, pouring millions of dollars, millions of dollars into our city. Like it became our mission to change our city. And by the way, we have a long ways to go. But I'm like, we are just now seeing fruit of it the last 24 months. Yeah. And we're seeing our economy turn around. We're seeing crime start to drop. And, and again, I, I, I want to be careful. Like, we are not a transformed city. But we are on our way. Yeah. And now, you know what's happened? Unbelievers go, our city's changing. Yeah. Hope is rising. One of the most repeated phrases is that people are happy in our city. When we had a car fire that destroyed about 11% of our city, our city council, smart as they were, they went down to Santa Rosa, where four years earlier, there was a fire that wiped out like 30% of Santa Rosa. You probably heard of that fire. And they sat with those, the, their board of supervisors and their city council and said, we're in the middle of a fire. I mean, the fires are still burning. And they're like, what did you learn? And they said, the worst thing that happened was after the fires, our suicide rate tripled. And, and they started talking about that, that depression set into their, to, their, to their city. People started killing themselves. Crime rose like these crazy statistics. And they came back and they said, you know, we're in for a really bad season if we don't do something. Our statistics reversed. People were in Costco that lost their house. And they're like, I lost my house, but I didn't lose my life. And I'm dead serious. I mean, unbelievers. They're like, you know what, you know, we bought a new house, we built a new house, we did, and, and like literally, literally, the morale of our city, I'm not kidding you, actually went up. Yeah. And people are like, and, and we, we had teams, other churches had teams, Salvation Army came in, uh, I mean, uh, this, the, the government came in and helped us, I mean, there's lots of people helping us, and we, we, our teams would put on hazmat suits, it was 110 degrees, Eric was out there with the team, and they were sifting through uh, they, we had these sifters, and we were sifting through ashes. I mean, we're talking about like 10 days after their houses burnt down, looking for valuables. We found people's wedding rings. We found medals of honor that people got for, for their, their, their grandfather's service in the military. And people would just weep. Unbelievers would weep when we found this stuff. And it, it was just like the fact that someone cared enough. And Joyce Myers came in with her ministry and said, how can we help you? And we said, we're, we're, we're trying to cut down all these trees. You can't build, you, you can't rebuild your house until you cut down all these black trees. They're, they're toxic. And insurance only covers uh, the plot of land your house is in. So it's, it's, a, it's anywhere from ten dollars to, to $30,000 to clear your plot. And we're like, why don't we go buy the equipment and we'll cut down these trees and we'll chip them up so people can rebuild their homes. 
And we, we raised 600000 to do that. We bought equipment. Joyce Myers came in, and we asked Joyce if, if they would give 100000 to help us. And they came down, and they said, help you? Why don't we buy another 600000 and you can have two teams. So now we have two teams because of Joyce Meyer and her ministry. So benevolent, by the way. Yeah. We asked for 100 grand. She gave us 600 grand. Bought a whole nother set of, another set of tractors, another set of chip, chippers, and, and funded a team for another 18 months. Like just people coming in and helping us. And you know what happens when you go to a person who doesn't know God? And you're like, for free, you clear their property, you're there for three days, cutting down trees, chipping it up with the owners right there. I mean, we're winning trust. We are building connection in places we would never have connection. We're getting letters from people like, you know, I'm not a believer, and I've always thought you guys are weird. I don't know if you guys are weird still. We get, these, we get these strange letters like, I think you guys, your doctrine, like, I, don't, I, don't, I want you to know, like, I'm not, I'm not going for that. But thank you so much for what you did. It's just amazing connection. In the midst of darkness, we arise and shine. This is our mandate. This is our mission. Arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth. But you are like owls. You can see through the darkness. You can rise in the darkness. In darkness, when everyone else sleeps, we rise we wake up. We say, we are the hope of the nations. Jesus is in us, and we are the hope of the nations. This is our prophetic call. It's not just to prophesy over some people in church. I love that. Let's keep doing it. Let's not lose this to, to gain that. But let's think about the big picture. Let's, hey, how about this? How about we leave here Friday and change the world? That's what I want to do. Would you stand? We have the students come in, right? Yes. And um, we're going we're gonna to let you go in just a couple of minutes. And, um, but we're going to have the students come up here. And if you want prayer or prophecy or a miracle, or you feel hopeless, or you need commission, or you need anything. Like these, these are miracle workers. Look at these. these are, look at that. Does that guy look like a miracle worker? Got miracle workers right here. You got miracle workers right here, and uh, and they'll just stay as long as you need prayer. So you know you can if you if you happen to be in line, um, just be patient. They'll pray for you. They'll pray for everyone before uh, before um, you go before you go before they go. Uh, but I want to pray for you all. I want you to put your hand on your heart, and and I, I feel <laughs> you can take your hand off after I tell you what I'm gonna pray for if you don't want it. Because I feel like I'm supposed to pray for the heart of warriors. I feel like God wants us to rise up and be salt and light. And I feel like there's like almost like a spirit of activism, but not in a weird way. But I feel like the Lord wants to activate people. I think Eric said, awaken people. All these words that say, hey, when the crowd is going that way and running from the battle, I'm like, no, 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 we run into the battle holding up the light and saying, hey, we're going to win. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would awaken the warrior. We are more than conquerors. That means we were born for battle. 
And Lord, I just pray right now in Jesus' name that we know that our enemy is not people. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's not the president. It's not, it's not our governors. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are powerful for the pulling down of strongholds. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what the real enemy is. That the puppets are not the enemies. But those who are pulling the strings of the puppets are our enemies. And Lord, I thank you that you gave us power over all the power of the enemy. That he's disarmed and defeated. He's got no arms and he's got no feet. And Lord, <laughs> Lord I pray that you would inspire everyone. Anyone who's come here defeated I, I, I'm losing, I'm a, I'm a victim, I, the devil's big. I want to say that the Lord would expose that lie tonight and that you would realize you've been duped, you've been lied to, you've been deceived. The truth is, is that you, greater is he who's in you than he's in the world. And you're like, I feel like I'm in a battle. You were created for battle. You're more than a conqueror. And Lord, I just pray right now for battles to be won even while we worship this week. That things that you're going through, I pray that several of you are going to get calls from your children, from your spouses, from your employees, from your, from, I, I, I think two people are going to get calls from, from your attorney and say the case has been dropped, the lawsuit's canceled. I, I believe that while you are worshiping, that the Lord is going out and he's striking down your enemies. Again, not people. He's striking down your enemies. And I believe this is going to be a week of miracles. And yet God's going to do miracles to you so he can prove to you that he wants to do miracles through you. And even like that man already, just during worship, who his vision came clear, your vision's going to come clear. And you're going to be like, something powerful happened to me. And you're going to go back to your city and you're going to see your city with new eyes. Whether your city has 500 people in it or 5 million or 500 million people. There's not 500 billion people in your city. There's no city that big. Maybe the angels, if we count those. But you're going to go back to your city no matter its size, and you're going to have faith for your city. Because if God put you there, then he gave you faith as big as your city. And Lord, I just bless every single person in this room. I thank you for them, God. And I pray that they leave full of faith, full of hope, and ready to engage their city with the equipment that you're equipping them with this week. In Jesus' name. Everybody say, I receive that for myself. Amen. Ben, thank you very much. God bless you. Well, I really hope you enjoyed the message. I want to remind you about the School of Prophets again in August. It's really going to be epic. Daniel and I want to invite you to really have the time of your life there and really get trained and equipped specifically for your realm of culture. Join us, Bethel.com slash prophets. All the information is there. We hope to see you in August. God bless.